0: This is Car Expert.
1: The Wildtrak V6 itself didn't excel in any one area beyond
2: the individual category winners. It just did everything so well. It was probably the biggest undertaking we've ever had. Four times the size of the last Megatest we did, so it was a big jump up.
3: It was just cool to see the organisation in the background, how the team strive to collect the data in a way that wouldn't allow any mistakes.
0: Paul Maric, hello.
1: Hello, Mandy. How's it going?
0: Very well, thank you. All for better for seeing your face and hearing your voice. Um, your hello, Spock Polly.
1: Look, Mandy, as someone who often has to see Paul's face, I, I will say the novelty wears off after a while. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, now, this is a bit of a, a, a special sort of podcast. We've got the usual news with um, with Jack Quick uh, coming up very soon, but um, we have spoken about this uh in varied spots here and there on the podcast in the past about Ute of the Year. So we're just going to focus on this one for this podcast. Um, What sort of things are we going to cover off on, Paul?
4: Yeah, look, um, Ute of the Year is now live. We've announced our Ute of the Year plus also the rest of our category winners um, today. We'll go into a bit more detail about it all, including the behind the scenes of um, how it's all filmed, which um, is a massive pain in the arse. Um, not not talking <laughs> about it, actually doing it um, and editing it. So, um, we'll have Sean on from our video team to, to run through that. Um, and it's also worth mentioning now as well that I'm really proud of what we've achieved with you to the year. Um, I know the last car of the year test I was involved in, and, and I won't name names, but uh, we didn't actually test any cars. Uh, they were all shipped to a racetrack car park, and, and we took photos of them and then some of them didn't even leave the car park for photos because they weren't finalists. So um, that's my memory of uh, a car of the year and, and we wanted to do it differently by actually driving um, those vehicles and and showing everyone on screen how we're assessing them live so you can actually see the results and why we declare a winner. There's no hiding behind the numbers. They are the numbers. And I think some of the results surprised people. Some of the youths they thought were going to do really well just didn't do well at all. So, um, mm. yeah, it's it's an awesome piece of content and um, the videos are, are performing really well on YouTube. So if you haven't seen them already, I do encourage you to head along to the website and also YouTube to check out the amazing content.
0: Well, the thing I love about all of that content is it's just not – five-minute videos here and there some of them are about an hour it's it's a good sitting and you could easily binge it i reckon
4: (laughs) yeah and that's the thing there there will be some utes in there you probably don't care about but that's that's the beauty of being able to skip ahead and and we can see the peaks and troughs of where people are skipping so it's really cool to see Mm. the utes people are interested in and and um, how they are expecting them to go so it is yeah it's pretty interesting to see
0: Awesome. Well, uh, uh, coming up very soon, we're going to to talk to Scully about uh, all the winners and all those pieces of content that we've done. We've got Jack Quick on this week to talk car news. Hello, Jack.
5: Hi there, Mandy. How are you?
0: Very well, thank you. Uh, Let's get into the first story, the 2023 Cherry Emota 5. We've got all the deets for this. Can you give us the lowdown?
5: Yes, yeah, we have all of the details. So Cherry um, is back again. It's a Chinese brand. It's coming back to Australia with the Omoda 5 small crossover. It's a little SUV that's coming very shortly. Uh, it's pitched against uh, the GWM uh, Havel Jolion as well as the MG ZST to just give you a bit of context about where it's being uh, positioned, uh, more of a budget. Uh, option. Uh, the Emoto 5 starts at $29,900 uh, $29, before on-road costs and extends to $32,900 before on-road costs. So it's around that thirty dollars to $35,000 uh, offering. Uh, both of these variants, initial variants, are powered by a 1.5-litre turbocharged four-cylinder petrol engine uh, with front-wheel drive only. Uh, there are more expensive variants on their way uh, with a more powerful all-wheel drive system at a 1.6 litre turbo uh, petrol engine too Uh, in addition to that there's also an electric motor 5 that's due here in the first half of 2024 so next year and there's also been a plug-in hybrid version that's been mooted for australia but we'll have to wait and see if that's coming at this stage so this um, Emota 5 is kind of restarting uh, Cherry again in Australia and there are some larger models coming uh, with that being the, the Tigo 7 Pro and the Tigo 8 Pro, uh, Pro uh, due in the second half of this year and they're both larger than the Emotive 5, which is more of a small SUV. Um, the, the new Cherry range uh, will be sold through a network of 40 dealers nationally um, with additional regional, uh, regional dealers to be added at a later date. Um, I'd love to know, are you uh, surprised with how Cherry ha- uh, has positioned the Emota 5 in regards to pricing and all those fun stuff?
1: I'm not surprised. I actually think Cherry has done a decent job with the pricing on this, partly because it's still reasonably affordable. It's sort of lined up with the jolly on, but also because it's not too cheap. Um, I think there was a risk if Cherry had come in at 20 grand with this car, for one, that they wouldn't make any money and wouldn't last, but also that people would immediately think of the really cheap and cheerful until they weren't very cheerful cars that happened last time around. And between really poor crash ratings and asbestos and all the other stuff that happened in between, there is some bad sort of heritage associated with the Cherry brand. So I almost think by pricing it a little bit higher than absolute bargain basement, Cherry's kind of saying we're a different brand now, it's a better product. And whether or not that's true, we don't know. We're driving the car this week, but at least they're giving it a chance. I, I'm, so I'm surprised by the price. I didn't think it'd be that cheap. Twenty nine
4: grand or whatever is is really cheap for an SUV. I mean, if you're a family mm. and you don't want to spend forty up, upwards of forty grand on a car that you're gonna to have to wait months for, it seems affordable to me. I haven't driven it. I haven't even sat in it yet. So that'll be this week, but um, and we'll see whether it matches up to the price. But yeah, I was surprised by the pricing at the very least.
0: Yeah, indeed. We're going to stick with uh, Chinese cars. It looks like uh, there could be a Tesla Model 3 rival coming from China, Jack.
5: Yeah, it looks a bit crazy too if you haven't already seen a photo of it, but Ion, an electric brand from China's GAC brand, is gearing up to bring its Tesla Model 3 rivaling Hyper GT uh, to Australia. Um, at this stage, it will bring an example, example over uh, to show in October. Um, there hasn't been a, a set uh, date for when Australian launches will begin, but they've just indicated that it could be on sale. Uh, before this, uh, uh, ION will also show off its Y and V SUV models uh, later this month. So there'll be a whole range of ION models, that you probably never heard of the brand, coming very shortly. Um, so the ION Hyper GT, the one that I'm talking about, uh, the one that rivals the Tesla Model 3, is a four-door sedan um, with electric scissor doors um, up the front on the uh, The high spec models, which looks freaking crazy, uh, as I said, if you haven't seen the photos, Um, it has a 900 volt electrical architecture, which is crazy given how vehicles such as the uh, Hyundai Ionic Five have an 800 volt electrical architecture. This is a step above that, and it's capable of this Ion Hyper GT is capable of charging at speeds of up to 480 kilowatts, which is a lot. I can't think of any other way to describe it than a lot. Um, At this stage, it's expected to launch locally with a single-motor rear-wheel drive version uh, producing 250 kilowatts and 430 newton metres. And a dual-motor all-wheel drive version is also expected potentially at a later date. Uh, We'll have to wait and see, though, because none of these details are confirmed as of yet. Uh, another quick thing is that the Ion GT, uh, uh, Hyper GT should say, has a claimed drag coefficient of zero point one nine, which is better than the point uh, zero one better than the Mercedes Benz EQS sedan, which is already a pretty slippery thing, and um, it makes it one of the most aerodynamic uh, aerodynamic mass-produced cars in the world. Now, um, in China, the Ion Hyper GT uh, costs between uh, 58000 to $68,000 uh, with a direct exchange. We don't know pricing yet in Australia because it's not even confirmed yet, so we'll just have to wait and see. But um, I'd love to know, will this uh, this Ion Hyper GT uh, take sales away from the Model 3? Paul, you've owned a Model 3. I feel like you're well qualified to answer this. Um, I think it's safe
1: for the moment. Um, <laughs> I don't know, there's a lot of these ambitious Chinese brands,
4: but the problem is they all land in Australia with the same problem, which is there's no charging infrastructure. The dealerships are who knows where. As far as I can tell, there's no phone connectivity with them. It is just kind of a bit, you know, just arrive and and see how it goes. So maybe if it's priced incredibly cheap, uh, perhaps, but I think that Tesla's supercharging network and, and tech advancements really just give you no reason to to look at anything else at the moment. Um, I think think that really is uh, the icing on the cake when it comes to that EV stuff.
1: I think the other thing with the ION is, and we're seeing this with a few Chinese brands, is that it does some stuff differently, but different doesn't necessarily mean better. Um, The doors on most cars work really well and they have for a really long time. Um, The flip-up doors on that ION, as much as they look really cool, We don't know how they're going to perform in a tight underground garage or on the school run, and they're all really important things to the people who are buying Model 3s. I think the other thing is, although people do want to kind of stand out a little bit, I don't know that there's all that many Australians that want to draw the sort of attention to themselves that you would draw if you pulled up in a Woolworths car park and flipped up the door to unload your child. Um, I do wonder if maybe ION's pushed this thing a little bit too far, but diversity is a good thing, and I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing one on the road.
0: Mm, as do I. Now, the uh, Renault eTech e Electric is coming to Australia. I actually don't mind the look of this one, Jack, but I don't like the price.
5: Yes. Yeah, so pricing hasn't been confirmed yet, but um, the Renault is e uh, ETEch Electric is set to launch locally in the fourth quarter of this year, and uh, it'll be priced from the early to mid $70,000 range. So a little bit, a fair bit. Um, at this stage, we know it'll be uh, the reg- Ma- Renault Megane e-Tech electric will be sold through uh, the dealer network rather than online, like another uh, range of other electric uh, vehicles are sold. Uh, um, at this stage, this, that's about all of the info that we really know. But uh, there was a recently, um, the Megane e-Tech was uh, recently approved for sale due to some uh, leaked go- uh, government documents. And uh, there were two variants uh in those documents called the Techno and the Iconic. <laughs> so those would be the variant names. And uh, one pa- powertrain was listed um, with 160 kilowatts and 300 newton metres of torque. Uh, this powertrain also mated to a 60 kilowatt-hour battery um, with a claimed range of 470 kilometres. Listed brake cont- a towing capacity is uh, 900 kilos, which is typical given it's an electric car, while tear mass is uh, around 1,600 kilos. And a few other things as well. Uh, One last thing, sorry, is it will be available in uh, 18 and 20-inch wheels. Now, for just a bit of context about this Magan uh, E-Tech Electric, it's uh, based on the same platform as the Nissan Ariya, that's yet to be, to be uh, yet to be confirmed for Australia. Just so that you can kind of picture what it looks like, it's obviously a Magan, but it's more of a crossover SUV. But um, is this uh, is this vehicle fitting to where the Megane name given? It's a crossover. Uh, crossover, I should say. Uh, look, the Megane name
1: has seen a few different forms now. I still remember the ads from the Megane in the early 2000s, the uh, I Like Big Butts and I Cannot Lie ones. Um, yes. And then there was the car that was filled with eggs because it was so safe. Then there was the really sexy one that had the RS variant that we all love, the two-door coupe. So I think the Megane name has evolved quite a lot over the years. It kind of makes sense to put it on a crossover. I think the other thing about this car is I just love the way it looks. And it kind of shows that Renault has a bit of its confidence back. For a while there, it seemed like it was sort of hinting towards this direction. It had the vertical screens and different looks, but the cars also felt kind of like French versions of a Golf almost. Renault is now at a point where the electric products they're talking about look really confident. There's no sort of hint of them trying to be something else. They are just interesting French cars. And I'm looking forward to seeing where that takes them in Australia because already under their new distributor, They're looking quite good on the sales charts and they've got
5: some new product hopefully coming.
0: And lastly, Jack, Mazda's largest SUV is coming here in August.
5: Yes, yes. So the Mazda uh, CX-90, the big three-row SUV, uh, set to arrive locally in August. So very soon. Um, And one thing that really stands out is that the diesel version, which is exclusive to Australia, is uh, capable of fuel economy similar to the Kluger hybrid, which is a a bold claim. So yeah, this a uh, three point three liter inline six turbo diesel uh, in the CX90 is also shared with the CX60, um, and it produces one hundred and eighty seven kilowatts of power and five hundred and fifty newton meters of torque, and it has a claimed fuel economy in the CX90. This is for of um, five point four liters per hundred k's. Now, just for a bit of context, the, the Toyota Kluger hybrid has a claimed five point six liters per hundred k, so this is better claimed to. Hmm be at least than the kluger hybrid which is crazy to me because toyota hybrids are very very efficient um, like the CX60, uh, this CX90's um, uh, diesel engine, uh, petrol engines, uh, made it with a 48-volt mild hybrid system, which helps us keep fuel use down. Um, beyond the fuel efficiency figures, though, for this diesel engine, um, the CX90 uh, diesel will street, uh, sprint to 100 k's an hour in 8.4 seconds, uh, which is one, uh, 1.2 seconds faster than the CX8 diesel. Uh, meanwhile, I'll chat a little bit about the pet, uh, petrol engine now. Uh, this is a 3.3-litre inline-six petrol as the brand's most powerful production engine with uh, 254 kilowatts of power and 500 newton-meters of torque. Uh, now, this is really cool. The CX-90's uh, petrol is claim, uh, petrol version is claimed to do uh, the 0 to 100k uh, sprint in 6.9 seconds, which is pretty quick for a, a large three-row SUV. Right. And our claimed fuel economy for this petrol engine in the CX-90 is 8.2 litres per 100k, which isn't as good as the diesel, but it is better um, than the current CX-9 with its 2.5-litre four-cylinder turbo. Uh, In addition to these uh, diesel and petrol versions of the CX-90, uh, a uh, plug-in hybrid, should say, is planned to arrive in 2024. And uh, at this stage, local pricing and specifications for the CX-90 range are yet to be confirmed, but uh, will be announced during the first quarter of this year, so it shouldn't be too far away. But I'd love to know, will the diesel be the pick of the CX-90 range?
4: Yeah, I, I reckon it could be. Um, I also reckon these fuel economy claims could be a little ambitious. So I'll be curious to see <laughs> how they actually stack up in real life. Because my experience with these vehicles is they're all big and heavy, and the lofty ambitions they have are just kind of sometimes a little bit, um, a little bit lofty. I reckon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we've um, we've seen a lot of brands come and claim things that Toyota hybrids can't match. I think of Nissan ePower, for example, which in my experience with an X-Trail this week, can at best match a RAV4 hybrid, but in day-to-day driving has been slightly worse. Um, Those cars are very efficient, and Toyota's been doing that for about 20 years now. So I love the idea of a Mazda with a conventional inline-6 diesel that offers RAV4 numbers or Kluger numbers, but history has taught us that, yeah, maybe we should be a little bit sceptical.
0: Indeed. Well, if you have any say, you can um, shoot us an email, podcast at au, and you can also hit the site for more news stories as well. Thank you, Jack Quick. Thanks, Mandy. Right. Let's talk about Ute of the Year and more so the winner and all the categories and, and all those sort of things, Scully. Um, which Ute was Ute of the Year?
1: Do we have a drum roll sound effect, Mandy? The winner is the <laughs> Ford Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the Ranger, if I can turn off my Larry M. DeVoyce. Um The Ranger was the winner, and it was the winner because it, um, it just does everything well. Um, this result applies across the Ranger lineup. It's not just the Track V6, but that is the car that we ap- actually tested. Um, and it just excelled in pretty much everything. Um, the V6 diesel is absolutely our pick because – If we're talking about straight line acceleration, which was one of the tests, it beats all the four-cylinder cars pretty comfortably. If we're talking towing, it wasn't quite as good as the V8 American utes, but it was significantly more comfortable than the four-cylinder utes and it was just beautifully tuned to haul two and a half tons. Off-road, it walked through pretty much all of our tests and it makes off-roading easy for nervous off-roaders because it's got a really intelligent infotainment system and really simple graphics and that sort of thing that mean if you're not sure what you're doing, it kind of tells you. So hmm. although the Track V6 itself didn't excel in any one area beyond the individual category winners, it just did everything so well and at such what we think is a reasonable price, it was absolutely the, the winner.
0: Hmm. Well, were there any standouts for that car that, that walked all over the other utes?
1: So it depends on the category, and maybe now's a good time to go through our categories. But to start with, we did performance testing. Um, We did a drag race, and in the drag race, the Chevrolet Silverado and the Ford Ranger Raptor were the two quickest cars in our first round of testing. Once we'd finally lined them up side by side, though, we then also wheeled out of Ram 1500 TRX. And um, let me tell you, as, uh, as someone who likes, you know, small cars and hot hatches and little sports cars, That TRX might be the car that converts me because it just – it was so fast in a straight line. The noise it makes is incredible. It's got this crazy supercharged V8. Um, And even with a a really quite average launch from a very average driver, which was me, um, the launch control was playing games and I couldn't get it to, to do exactly what I needed it to. It, uh, it pretty comfortably walked away from the Ranger Raptor. So if you want to go fast in a straight line or if you want to scare other road users, the TRX is absolutely the car for you. Um, I think in terms UK of the broader performance testing, we also did 0 to 100 testing, 80 to, one test, uh, 80 to 120 testing, quarter mile runs and brake tests. All of the results are at carexpert.com at the moment. But uh, I think some of the more surprising figures came from the big Americans. The Silverado 1500 and the Ram 1500 are both big trucks. They both weigh two and a half tons. But the Silverado did zero to 100 in six and a half seconds and the Ram did seven seconds, which is kind of hot, warm hatch territory. The Mm. next best behind those was the Ford Ranger Wild Track at 8.9 seconds and then we're into the 10-second range. In terms of the overtaking at highway speeds as well, it was Ranger Raptor, Silverado and Ram 1500 that really sort of dominated out of the regular utes. Uh, If you want an understanding of how fast the 1500 TRX is, it did 80 to 120 in 2.8 seconds. The next best was the Ranger Raptor at Um, 4.2. And again, for the quarter mile, the the TRX was comfortably the quickest. I think in terms of surprise packages – we were a little bit disappointed with how the Nissan Navara performed. Uh, it was quite slow in a straight line. It, uh, it was actually one of the slowest cars there, or the slowest car there. It took 19 seconds to do the quarter mile, uh, and the 0 to 100, it took 13.2 seconds. It narrowly was beaten by the Triton GSR. Um, it sort of shows the effect of having big, chunky off-road tyres without adding any more power, although they did help it perform really well in our off-road testing it also did make it look and feel quite slow on the drag strip
0: wow aside from the uh, the Ranger what surprised you off-roading
1: so our most confident performer off-road was the Jeep Gladiator Um, It is a car that you would probably expect to be good off-road because it's a Jeep and it's built on the base of the Wrangler. But our experience with the Gladiator previously has always shown it to be a really cool car and one we really enjoy driving, but one that kind of fits in an awkward spot in Australia because it's not as good at towing in terms of the amount it can haul as a Ranger or a Hilux. It's quite big, um, but it's also not necessarily able to carry any more in its tray than those cars. And it's not as good off-road as a Wrangler because the overhangs are bigger. Once we actually put it through our off-road tests and they were going through an offset mogul test to test body rigidity, um, driving up to a hill on a 10% grade with a set of metal rollers down one side of the car. So half the car had really good traction and half the car had no traction to test how effective a car's traction control system was and then um, testing the car going up a very steep hill, 45% grade on on what we call gravel mountain, and then going down it as well using hill descent control. On all of those tests, it showed itself to be really capable. And then once we sort of had shown that in the same modes as the other Utes, it would do it, we put it in its most capable modes, which was sway bar disconnect and a couple of other things locked up and it just waltzed up these hills. It has another gear beyond what these other utes do um, in terms of the hardware. And, of course, it being a Jeep, there's a million different ways you can customize it and take it further off-road again if you want to. So, mm-hmm. the, um, the Gladiator was really impressive and, and did show that Jeep knows what it's doing off-road. The other one that performed really strongly was the Nissan Navara Pro 4X Warrior. Um, it obviously didn't do as well on the performance testing, but it's been designed by uh, Premcar and Nissan to be really capable off-road and, you know, more direct and comfortable on it. And on our hill climb, it was noticeable the impact of those tyres. Uh, they, they really did make a difference in the, and the, the way that it rode was fantastic. Um, and also on our rollers test. Even though that car is quite old, clearly someone quite clever has tuned the stability control and the traction control and the way that it interacts with the four-wheel drive systems because the car performed really strongly. I think also a special mention to the Mitsubishi Triton, which, as uh, as we will discuss later on, was run into when it was parked in the city and had a big gash down its side. That thing is old as the hills now relative to the other utes. It's really getting long in the tooth. But it was one of the stronger performers in our testing as well. And it just goes to show that newer is not always better.
0: <laughs> yeah, very, very true. Um, what about the, uh, the the towing contest? How did all that go?
1: So for our towing tests, we had a couple of different ways of testing them. Uh, one of them was with a two and a half ton trailer, which in the case of most of these uses about a ton under their maximum capacity. In the case of the Raptor, it was getting very close to its maximum capacity, We also had what's called a Dyne trailer, and this thing looks like a little box, essentially. You wouldn't really know what it is looking at it, but it's capable of varying its resistance. So it's like having a boat anchor out the back, essentially, and you can turn a dial on a computer, not an actual dial. We didn't have someone riding the trailer like they were, you know, strapped to the roof. But you can essentially vary how much the, the trailer pulls back on the car with the intention of testing the car in conditions that otherwise you'd need to find a really steep, long hill for Um, We did acceleration testing hooked up to this. We did uh, fuel economy testing hooked up to this trailer with the intention of sort of finding out how these utes performed on the equivalent of driving at highway speeds up a very steep hill. And it was really interesting. A lot of our utes wouldn't get to 100 kilometres an hour with this trailer attached. Um, There was also a distinct difference between the four-cylinder utes that we tested and the more powerful six-cylinder and V8 utes. So the best four-cylinder was the Isuzu D-Max and Mazda BT-50 twins. They they really did perform well. And a lot of people like these utes because of how they tow. And it sort of showed with the two and a half ton trailer on the back. The suspension was nice and settled over our rough road. It had enough torque and it was geared well enough to get up the hill without feeling too strained. But The Ranger Wildtrak V6 was a step above again, and then the Ram 1500 Laramie was just effortless with that trailer on the back. Um, In our video, you'll notice Paul commenting on how well it performed because it just pulls up the hill in a way that the diesel utes don't. And because it does have such a long wheelbase and it's tuned to tow, it's got a four and a half ton as opposed to a three and a half towing capacity. The two and a half ton trailer didn't really feel like we were stretching its capabilities. I know it's much more expensive than some of the others. Uh, You're going to have to pay about 130 grand for the one that we had, and that is a lot of money. But if towing is a priority, it really is noticeable how much more headroom these V8 American Utes have to comfortably haul a big trailer for a long time.
0: Hmm. What about the other end of the scale, uh, the the more cheaper Utes? Did you um, review any Chinese Utes?
1: We did. So we wanted an LDV T60, but couldn't get the updated model through, unfortunately. Uh, Our plan is to hopefully do that later this year when the new Amarok arrives as well. But the GWM Ute Canon X, which is still a fantastic name, it wins the Best Name Award if we had one of those. um, It it was the Chinese representative and it performed, I would say, probably performed in line with its price tag. Um, Ultimately, it wasn't quite as good as a Ranger in a number of areas, but. On our uh, towing test, for example, it was still capable with a two-and-a-half-ton trailer on the back. On our performance test, it wasn't the slowest. It beat the Triton, the Navara, and, you know, showed that it's got a bit of pick-up-and-go despite having what on paper looks to be quite a low-power engine relative to some of the others. Off-road is where it struggled a little bit. Um, it didn't make it up our hill. It, the hill descent control didn't perform all that well. Didn't do great through the offset mogul test. It sort of got itself stuck on the two moguls and had to have the rear diff lock to get out of there. Again, it got it wasn't as if it was grounding out or in any critical danger, but there was just a degree of polish lacking in it that was present in some of the other Utes. And to criticize GWM for that maybe isn't fair, because obviously they haven't done this for nearly the same amount of time as Toyota has with the Hilux. And for what you're paying, you do get a lot of Ute. But When it really came to the pointy end in testing, it just didn't perform quite as well as some of the others. I think, for me, it wouldn't necessarily stop me buying one because a lot of people drive these Utes on the road and some of the stuff the GWM does have, including the full-time all-wheel drive system that works on tarmac, even though the car won't go as far into the wilderness, make it nicer to drive day-to-day. So, yeah, look, it, it performed quite strongly and I think it performed miles better than the old GWM Steed would have, but there's still a little bit of room for improvement. I think the other affordable ute that we tested that's worth mentioning is the Ssangyong Musso XLV. Um, Ssangyong is a brand, has a lot of fans in Australia, and it's got quite a long history, even though it's had different owners. This Musso on the road is incredibly refined. And again, like the GWM, it actually performed reasonably well given its price. Off-road, it's got um, an automatic locking rear diff instead of a manual button to press, which means that it can be a bit violent in how it engages, but It performed quite well in the Offset Mogul test, the way it got through. Um, It did okay with the trailer on the back. It's a really good alternative to the mainstream players, provided you don't need to go right to the end of the capability like maybe you would in a Raptor or a Pro 4X Warrior.
0: um, Did you do any comparisons in terms of cabin and practicality as well?
1: So we do have ute dimensions a uh, tub dimensions for all these Utes saved away for a rainy day essentially that nice. will come at some point. Um, this was more focused on the the, the testing. so we do uh, we do have all the numbers and that sort of thing on the website. We don't have a cabin practicality section. What I can tell you having driven all of these Utes over the course of about 10 days is of the regular sort of dual cab Utes we think of in Australia the Ranger has the best cabin. It's got the best technology, it's the most comfortable but hopping from the Ranger into a Ram or a Chevy Silverado is like hopping into a different world. Oh, really? um, that Silverado is massive. It feels like you're sitting in a different postcode to your passenger. And the <laughs> Ram has got a massive screen that makes the little portrait one in the Ranger, which is quite impressive actually, look small. We had some bugs with ours. Ram says the software fixes has come to, to sort that out. But in terms of the tech you get and the space you get, I wouldn't want to sit in the back of any of those dual cab utes for an extended period of time. I would happily sit in the back of a Ram, and I think that's saying something.
0: Sounds like it's a limo to me now.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, we've we've talked about this on the podcast before. We're all obviously all built differently, and Mandy, you're not all that tall. I think you could, you could stretch out like it was a business class seat back there.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. So all the content for Ute of the Year, is that all live now, or are we expecting any more? To come
1: yeah so we now have four videos live on youtube they are all chugging away they're doing well with the views um my personal favorite of all of those is the off-road test because i know what went into making it happen but also yeah. uh, i think it's quite cool to see in a set field all 13 utes going up the same hill through the same moguls and you can skip through using chapters if you get bored at any point um i won't tell paul if you say you are it's fine um mm-hmm. But, yeah, the, the drag race as well, watching the TRX just take off is pretty cool. So, yeah, I would obviously watch all of them, but of the two, I think the drag race just shows how much difference there is in performance between very similar vehicles with similar concepts and that off-road test is is real. was a big thing to put together but uh, really does show how effective and so how ineffective some of the systems in these Utes are.
0: Yeah, indeed. Well, you get a bit of a behind-the-scenes look uh, very soon coming up for Ute of the Year. <laughs> And to get a bit of a look behind the scenes in terms of Ute of the Year and the production in putting all of that content into something that we can watch, we've got car expert videographer Sean Lander with us. Hello, Sean. Good Mandy. How you doing? Very good, thank you. So, uh, this must be this must have been a giant undertaking for you, uh, for you and Igor. Um, can you give us an idea on exactly how much work was involved with this?
2: Well, um, a few weeks of a pretty intense planning um, from all sides. Obviously, you know, Paul was spent a lot of time trying to organize all the props and everything we would need, the locations, James organized the cars, and then we had to try and figure out how to actually get all of that onto camera. So there was probably a good solid week and a half of uh, intense planning from Igor and myself trying to figure out how many videos we were going to have, uh, basically how many cameras we were going to need for everything, how many shots it was going to take. Um, you know, Paul gave us the list of videos that he wanted to do. So then we had to figure out how to actually make all those work. So it was uh, probably the biggest undertaking we've ever had at uh, Car Expert. Uh, four times the size of the last mega test we did. So it was a big jump up. But yeah, it's. A, a, a lot is, is the answer. You forgot to mention the great weather that we had. Oh, the, yes, of course. Paul picked um, the <laughs> Paul picked the first week of winter uh, in November <laughs> uh, November winter that we have in Melbourne here. So. <laughs> yeah, it would literally uh, be raining
4: one minute, then sunny. Then uh, one of the roads that we had to use wouldn't work well when it was raining, so we had to defer that to the next day. Then um, then we had issues with uh, the sun making things look crap. The, we- uh, the wind. So, yeah, that was great. Um, but just in terms of numbers, uh, how much data did we capture in
2: terms of video footage to put it
4: into perspective?
2: So, raw footage, we captured uh, around about two terabytes of footage. Um, now, to put that into perspective, using anything but the metric system, that's it, it equates to around about 150 hours worth of footage that we then had to cut down to oh, about four hours of video that ended up going onto YouTube. So... That comes from, uh, we had, at one point in time, we had about eight GoPros running. We had... Uh, That's all in 4K as well. All in probably. 4K. So we had eight GoPros running 4K across all the cars during the drag race, for instance. Um, when we did the towing, we had five GoPros running uh, between the car and the trailer that we are running. We'd have two A cameras, that so one that Igor and I would each have in our hands. We'd have B cameras that were remote and on tripods being operated by some of our uh, excellent help as we had. So yeah, it was a, quite a lot of footage. And the, the biggest thing about a lot of that footage is most of it's useless. So it's it's digging through it and trying to find all the gold that you can actually put together into a video.
4: And then we also had as well, um, everyone that was there was taking phone footage and pictures. So we had everyone upload all of that content into a folder as well so that we could use that as part of the shooting. So that was another Headache as well because there was just so much. it was over a terabyte of that stuff as well. So yeah, it was- and different
2: sizes, different file formats, different frame rates. So that, that was the tricky part with the phones. We probably should have uh, thought about that one a bit more before we did <laughs> That's it. That's why you get paid the big bucks, champ. <laughs> so, Sean,
1: actually, while, while we're talking nitty-gritty details, I've always wondered this about video because I always have this fear that I'm going to do this if I'm taking a video or an audio recording. How do you go about checking you haven't missed anything or that it's all saved correctly? Because I'd just be worried that we get home after 10 days of filming and there'd just be one video of Paul saying hi, guys, and nothing else would be there. Well, it's the one week of the year
2: I become religious and start (laughs) praying to God. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's – I mean, there's a lot of playback. There's a lot of, you know, It's hurry up and wait is the the name of the game with a lot of this stuff. So we'll do a take with Paul and then we'll check playback and make sure it's good and then – From there on, it's just a quick, yep, check it's there. Um, GoPros, it's a case of very quickly running around and checking that the shot is actually saved. Um, You know, when we, normally with the days when we shoot at Lang Lang for our usual car reviews, we'll just have one card in the camera that we'll just shoot on all day. This, we were swapping out cards twice a day. And so it would be a case of run that card back inside, copy it across, make sure it was backed up uh, and keep going with, spare cards that we had so yeah it was a lot of just checking double checking and then hoping for the best at the same time Uh, we also had one very unique issue where
4: um our photographer was out with the triton in the city over the weekend because the the test ran for eight days including a weekend where people got off and, and were able to go do whatever they wanted to and um someone in the city while he had the car parked Crashed into a car that was next to it, which then got thrown onto the Triton, which creased in the side of the car. We had a guy that didn't want to come down and give us his details because he was probably on his phone. Um, So that presented another issue because all of a sudden we had a Triton that was fine in one shot, and then in the next video, it was
1: (laughs) missing half its side. (laughs) That actually was possibly the most compelling footage of the whole week, though. We do have CCTV footage of the Triton getting collected, and although it's only good because everyone was okay. It does make for good viewing. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, Aside from that issue, Sean, were there any um, technical challenges for you? Uh,
2: Yes and no. I mean, obviously, aside from having uh, 50 million cameras and 50 million gigabytes of footage, um, audio was a, a bit of a nightmare in terms of, you know, like Paul was saying, the weather was wreaking havoc on us most of the time. So, one shot, we'd have to have the microphone buried deep down and underneath a fluffy and a jacket so you get muffled audio. Then, you know, we'd be in the car, would be a lot clearer. So trying to have that consistency across the audio was a big thing. Um, generally, with these sort of tests, we shoot everything sort of in a consecutive order, but there'd be some cases where we, you know, we would do one car with the dying trailer. We would, we would shot all the cars with the dying trailer, for instance. Then we moved over the hill road the next day, and shot everything on the hill road with the big caravan trailer, which means that the weather conditions are completely different. So it's trying to, like, make sure that that doesn't look too crazy and look too different to – otherwise people start thinking, you know, you're not doing the testing properly, which we we were, but, you know, it's just – it's a lot of it's illusion and smoke and mirrors.
0: Yeah. So do you have an idea on exactly how long it took you to – once filming stopped to put all of this content together?
2: Uh, well, we took a couple of weeks after we finished filming before we started editing it. Um, uh, Igor did the bulk of the work. He edited most of the videos, uh, whilst I was taking care of a lot of the, the day-to-day YouTube stuff that we do. Uh, but for instance, I sat down and did the towing video, which was the longest video uh, that we produced. That was an hour and 18 minutes that went onto YouTube.
0: Wow. But that
2: took me close to probably three weeks to edit the entire thing, um, uh, Part of that involved doing a sit-down with Paul back at the studio. We also had to go back to Lang Lang and shoot a couple of pickups uh, at, at one point with the trailer, just to explain a couple of the technical stuff. So if you take that into account, it was probably around about a month um, or about 120 hours to edit that whole one-hour video. So there's a lot of time, a lot of going back, a lot of tweaking things and making sure the youths had the proper coverage, making sure that, you know, we didn't miss any shots, making sure that, you know, when – when Paul's driving the car and he's saying that this characteristic is happening, we had the shot of it and we were able to actually make sure that we were showcasing that, which is, you know, I guess what makes these videos unique and against everyone else online, that, that we actually show what's going on so people can actually understand. And we actually happening. test things. And we actually test things, yeah. We're not just parked in a, in a pretty car park.
1: Actually, Sean, you mentioned everyone else. Yeah. Um, how, after all of that work, do you have any understanding of how it will do on YouTube? Because that's another great thing that I wonder about. After all that testing, you're kind of just at the mercy of the YouTube algorithm.
2: Yes and no. I mean, we we know that Ute content does well. We know that people like Ute content. So we sort of have a bit of uh, a bit of a, a pre-existing knowledge going into it that we know that people will come and watch it. But how many people, that's questionable. Um, timing is everything and. I do well we would have done this video you know probably with an Amarok as well but sometimes things don't work out that way and when the hype is up that will help improve the views but you know it's one of those things that you contents fairly evergreen so we were're pretty confident that having seen that no one else had really done such an in-depth test there's never really been a proper towing test we had a pretty good feeling that that we get eyeballs onto it that people would want to see this content so we were pretty hopeful going into it that it would come out. Uh, fairly successfully.
0: Hmm. Did you work with storyboards or checklists? And no doubt you would have had something to to be ticking shots off as you as you went. Uh, d-
2: definitely not storyboards um, because we we don't plan what's going to happen. Uh, we 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 test and actually, you know, show what happens. We're not we're not faking it. So um, certainly not storyboards. We did have shot lists that we needed to cover. So we, things like making sure we had B-roll of all of the cars in in a static form, so uh, wide shots of the cars, front and rear shots of the tyres, shots of the engine, uh, any important four-wheel drive features, tow features, things like that, so we made sure we had all that sort of stuff covered on every single car. Um, We also made sure, we had a few ideas, so with uh, the towing on the bowl, for instance, we we knew we wanted to do a a car-to-car shot, so... Um, and that was one where I would hang out the side of the, of a, another, youth, mostly the Silverado with a camera filming Paul towing it uh, at the same time as he was testing to make sure that the footage synced up. So when he was saying something was happening in the car, we had that um, outside footage to go with it. So we had a few ideas about things we wanted to do, but then a lot of it was just get there and you know just capture it, just run and gun and capture it as we did it.
1: I think one more question for our fashion-conscious listeners. Can you talk us through what inspires both your and Igor's go-to looks while you're filming? I'm going to describe this to people. Igor's generally involves an oversized floppy hat and Sean's generally involves a Ringer's Western
2: shirt. Is there any science to that? Uh, to mine, there's definitely science to it. Igor's, um, I think he just likes the hat. It's- he also drives the MX-5, so he's a bit weird. I think the science is you can't look as good as the, the presenter, so
4: you guys both achieve that comfortably. <laughs> yes, yes.
2: Sir. Everyone knows a grey polo shirt is the way to big <laughs>
0: <laughs> This has been a very insightful chat. Uh, videographer Sean Lander, thank you for your time. We love your work. My pleasure. Anytime. <laughs> At Car Expert, we have a section called Owner Reviews, which encourages you to write a review about your very own car. James Gelding decided to give it a crack and ended up winning a competition that saw him help our team with the giant undertaking that was the ute of the year. And uh, going by the smile on his face and the photos we captured, it appeared he had a good time. Uh, I I hope he did. Um, Hello, James, and congratulations.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: I suppose we need to um, ask the most obvious question first. Um, What was it like putting up with Paul's bad jokes?
3: Uh, look, I, I might need a couple counselling sessions, but I uh, will get through it.
4: <laughs> uh, good humour—it's um—it's in short supply these days.
0: <laughs> so, um, overall, how much fun did you have?
3: Oh, it was awesome! So much fun. I uh, didn't really want to leave. I can't believe you guys get to do this. as a full time job um, thrashing other people's cars. It's awesome. It was so no um, thrashing.
0: <laughs>
3: scientifically,
0: scientifically, What was um, the one surprising thing that um, you came away with in terms of like the behind the scenes stuff that we do?
3: Mm, yeah, so... It was a bit of a challenge logistically, Um, we had I think 13 cars at one point and 12 people so it was just cool to see the organization in the background and watching Igor the videographer um, taking all the different shots like there was so much going on um, and just how the team strived to collect the data uh, in a way that wouldn't allow any mistakes. Um, Yeah, we really tried to get the data correct to back up what Paul was feeling when he was driving the cars.
0: Excellent. And what was your role there? I'm assuming you were there for more than a day?
3: Yeah, I was there the whole time, uh, minus half a day because Virgin Australia couldn't take off in some wind, unfortunately. Uh, But yeah, I was there for most of the time and I was just helping out wherever I could, shuffling cars, uh, driving them to and from places and doing some of the measurements behind the scenes while the video filming was going on.
1: So James is sort of talking himself down there because on these tests, there is a lot that needs doing in the background, be that running cars around, picking lunch up, literally things as small as making sure every car has a tow ball. Um, And when you see the amount of video that's come out of it, obviously, you can sort of understand what goes into it from a video side. When you see the words that come out, you can understand what goes in from an editorial side. But There is so much, yeah, little stuff that needs to happen to make sure the video guys can do what they need to do and the editorial guys can do what they need to do and, you know, Paul can do his hair and all those sorts of things. So, um, (laughs) James is sort of talking himself down there because he, along with a couple of others, did an incredible amount of work in the background to make sure that everything ran really smoothly. Um, And a lot of it was very unglamorous jobs. Um, So, yeah, he's, he's selling himself a bit short there.
0: I actually noticed. I think it might have been you, Scully, that wrote in um, James's little piece about it, uh, you were doing some circle work or something in a raptor.
3: Oh, Is that, that was correct? definitely a highlight of the trip. That was so much fun. Uh, um, it
4: was
1: we it don't was call raining it so work. We call
4: it dynamic driving. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and actually, while we've got you on the record and on the microphone, James, just curious to know where you did learn to get a car sideways like that, having never been on a skid pan before. He's a Ford owner. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah. sometimes it gets a little bit wet outside, Uh, rear-wheel drive cars. um, It's just basic physics at that point, unfortunately.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Basic (laughs) physics. I I do like that. Uh, I'm so sorry, officer. It's just basic physics, unfortunately. My foot slipped (laughs) off the clutch, officer. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) Um, So speaking of driving, love to know a little bit more about your car history, James. What was your first car and what do you own now?
3: Uh, I still own my first car. I have a 2012 Ford Falcon XR6. It's a manual, which was um, hard to get at the time. Um, And a good buy because I got it just before COVID. So before the prices went sky high. Um, So I was lucky enough to get that. Um, Yeah, that's my car history. Apart from that, I've been reading stuff like wheels, magazines, grew up watching Top Gear, V8 Supercars, Formula One, just a car nut through and through really. So thought I'd give myself a crack at um, you know, summoning my inner motoring journalist for that competition and uh, was lucky <laughs> enough to get through.
0: Awesome stuff. Where did your love of cars come from?
3: My dad passed through, down through the family. Um, yeah. And then I just, you know, grew up watching those sort of shows and wanting to be a racing driver at some points and now more interested in the engineering side of what goes into making cars um, ride and handle and behave as they should.
1: And James, of the, the 13 utes that we had on test there, I think you would have driven most of them. Were there any that really stood out to you in any of the particular tests we did?
3: Uh, yes, there was. So, I was lucky enough to get some time behind the new uh, Wildtrak, the new Ranger, um, and also some time behind the other utes as well. Um, and I really liked the Ranger because of how refined it was. It, it felt like a big, firm family SUV to me, which is – High praise, I guess, because some of the other utes still feel a bit utilitarian. Um, they're still a little bit rough around the edges. So the technology combined, combined with the smooth drive train um, and how co- cohesive the ranger felt made it a standout to me. When we publish
4: these results, everyone accuses us of bias, and it's hilarious when it happens. Uh, especially when we bring in someone like you, who um, has absolutely no vested interest in anything winning, and you kind of just echo exactly what we found during the test. It is a bit, um, it is a bit funny the way that happens. Often they, they're car dealers or someone who's bought. One of the cars that didn't perform very well, but um, I, I do find it quite funny when someone that, that has nothing to do with um, sort of our, our regular day-to-day stuff comes in and, and comes up with the same conclusion that we did
3: yeah, I did have a good chuckle reading through all those comments accusing you of bias, and like, well, it was stated clearly in the article what happened.
4: It's like, come on, guys. Yeah, and all the results are there, <laughs> so it's it's pretty hard to fake that.
1: No, we <laughs> yep. um, we just we just hate certain brands, you know us. <laughs> um, James, of the testing facilities we use, obviously Lang Lang and the AARC, and then also the Max Performance Dyno in Dandenong. Um, which of those most jumped out at you? Because I know when I first saw both Lang Lang and the ARC, they kind of blew me away.
3: Yeah, I, I found them all quite interesting. With the dyno, I found it super interesting how much power cars lose to the wheels. I don't think a lot of people consider that. They just read the spec sheet, but really cars lose probably about – 50 kilowatts when by the time it gets to the tires so that was really fascinating to see Um, also at Lang Lang the different road surfaces and how they incorporate different friction in the concrete and tram lines and all sorts of various sort of bumps um, to mimic the country's roads that was awesome to drive down Um, and the AARC was super cool to see all the like the hills that they have set up to test traction control, um, to test suspension flex, that was all fascinating to see how the Ute's electronic stability control programs integrate with their mechanical po- components.
0: You can uh, you can read uh, James's uh, little report. He did a Ute of the Year at carexpert.com.au. It's really cool seeing, um, seeing what his experience was like. And um, congratulations once again, James, and thanks for your time on the podcast.
3: Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Okay, that's a wrap for this week's podcast. What sort of cars aside from utes have we got coming up for a change next week, Scully? Yeah,
1: look, would you believe that we have a ute through the garage, Mandy? Uh, We've got a Mitsubishi (laughs) Triton GLS, along with some really interesting new stuff. Uh, Cherry, a motor five. We've been writing about Cherry since late last year. They're, They're finally here. So I'm absolutely intrigued to see how that car stacks up. We've also got a Kia EV6 GT along with a Nissan Qashqai ST Plus and a turbocharged Subaru Outback in Melbourne. I'm also really keen to see how the Outback goes with the turbo. Um, on the other end up in Sydney, we've got a BMW X1 S-Drive 18i. And uh,
0: the team busy next week as well, jet-setting everywhere.
1: Yeah, so we've got Jack Quick off to India. Uh, this is his second attempt to get over there. First time around there were some visa troubles, but we have um, I think he sorted those out. We'll find out on Monday if he comes into the office. Um, and I'm off to Brisbane to drive the new Chevrolet Silverado, which has been updated with a new big screen and a new off-road trim.
0: Paul, it's been fun having you on this week. We should have you on more often.
4: Yes, um, you should also create days that are longer because <laughs> that way I'd have time to be on more often. <laughs> but thank you for I know. This.
0: Paul Merrick and uh, Scott Colley, thank you.
1: Thanks, Mandy.